I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? What got you there was something powerful and attractive to me in being able to protect myself, but then in also being help, help, able to protect other people. Because there was always this part of me that was like, I want to be 80 years old one day and sit in my rocking chair and look back and be like, you know what? I gave of myself. In some way, I gave of myself to the world. I think that's so important that we're not takers because we are takers, but that we have a moment to say, how am I giving back? A special agent for the United States Secret Service for over 12 years, Evie Pomporis was on the Presidential Protective Division for President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama. She has also protected Presidents George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and George H.W. Bush. During her career, she was a criminal investigator, worked undercover, and was an interrogator for the Secret Service's elite polygraph unit, highly trained in the art of lie detection, human behavior, and cognitive influence. Evie's heroic efforts as a first responder during the 9-11 terror attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City earned her the U.S. Secret Service Valor Award. On this episode, Evie dives deep on her new book, Becoming Bulletproof, that teaches you how to develop your mindset, how you can protect yourself, and strengthen your mental resilience and confidence. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Evie, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing really well, and I'm very much looking forward to this. And I think some of the themes that are going to come up are perseverance and work ethic. And I would love to know where you developed your work ethic from. I, I know it's something that's been ingrained from in the early age, and I would just love hearing about this. Yeah, so I want to put it out there. Like, I didn't always have a good work ethic. It's something I had to work on. I didn't even think about it when I was younger. I was that student who showed up to class late. I was the person who showed up to work right when she was supposed to show up to work. And so it was, a, it was an ev evolution. It was a process and it was a lot of it was about self-assessment. And so when you behave that way and when you do that stuff and you see that you don't do well in life or you're not getting ahead, that's when you stop and say, I'm doing something wrong. And I began to shift my performance so that I could have better outcomes. And 
it's a constant thing that I work on to this day. So for example, if I have a big meeting, I will I plan my day out so that I leave on time, that I'm not running late. It's just very simple things like that as far as work ethic. And if you're passionate about what you do and what you believe in, then that work ethic will also come easier. And that's something that's very important. If you're not passionate about what you do, if you don't like what you do, you're never going to de- develop a good work ethic. You're going to be you're going to be fundamentally unhappy and fundamentally underperform. Something you mentioned there is self-assessment, and I would love to know what that process looks like for you. Is this something you're doing daily or is this something more one or two times a year you really step back and analyze your entire scenario? What's that look like? No, nope, every day. If you're doing it twice a year, good luck with that. Every <laughs> <Good> day. <point. laughs> because every day you're doing different. Because if you look at it from a broad perspective, like twice a year, oh, what could I change? Can I ask you a question? What do you know to change? Because it's not a big thing that you change. You know what it is? It's always smaller habits. So if I look at today and I say, what could I have done differently today? And I, at night, I write. I'm not a big journal person. I, I don't have time to write paragraphs. But I write out every night, what are the things I could have done differently today? What are the, what's the one thing or two things that I'm, I wish I would have done differently? And it could be something as simple as I, I should not have had that cookie, something very basic. And just writing that down will make sure the next day and the day after that and the day after that, that I eat healthier. Or I should have been on time to my meeting. And then I will make sure that after that, I will be on time or I should have worked out whatever it is, or I should have spent more time working on this project. That will help you the next day and it will help you get immediate results. So every night I look at what could I notice that what could I have done differently? Not what could have everybody else or what should have everybody else around me done done. There's a difference in that. Yeah. I'm assuming we're going to hit back on that internal locus of control and the importance of I and focusing on what you can control. So I absolutely love that. I know we'll hit back on that again. What else do you do throughout a day? I, I'm almost thinking if you think of a, an elite basketball player, they've got their drills they're doing every single day, musician, the same thing. What about you? Anything else besides your routine at night? I have my routine in the morning is I wake up, I get, I don't drink coffee. I'm not big on coffee, but I do drink a green tea. I drink something that just, it's more of a comfort thing. It's like the habit. But as soon as I wake up, I change immediately. I wash my face. I get ready. Even now that we're working at home, I get up, I get ready, and I immediately leave the house. I hit, let sunshine hit me. I get in the car and drive, whatever it is. I get out of the house. I go for a drive. I go check my P.O. box. I'll get, get my tea from Starbucks or whatever it is. Then I come home to go do work. And when I'm working, I stay in my shoes from home. I stay fully dressed. You will never catch me in my pajamas. You will never catch me with slippers on. Because it changed my mindset when I work from home. It puts me in that I'm playing right now. I'm in that moment. I'm in my game. I'm my athlete on the court and I've got my uniform on. Then when my day is done, then I will break away and I will do my nighttime routine. Sometimes depending on what the day is, I may take like a 20 minute lunch break to eat, literally like a true lunch break. Because I feel that sometimes our brain needs a little bit of a reprieve. When you're going, you're going, you're going, you're less created, you become more stagnant, your performance is lower. So shifting that, that, that mindset. And then at night, very important, my routine. My routine really drives me at night. And then again, it really is for each person to find what works for them. But I immediately get out of the house. I need sunlight. I need sunshine. I don't care how cold it is because it, it immediately alters you when you leave the house. 
yeah, the importance of finding what works for you. I love some of these little strategies, and obviously the compounding effect there is the more of these you do uh, over long term, the more benefits you'll receive from them. You mentioned about putting on on the outfit and just having that mindset of, of you're in that work environment. What about mentally? Do, do you go to a separate place? Do you have a, a work Evie and a, a non-work Evie in terms of how you approach things? Oh, yeah. When I'm in work mode, I'm in work mode. Like if I need to put on a do not disturb sign <laughs> on my door, when the door is closed, it means don't come in because you become distracted. And look, it is very hard and we do our best because we are at home. Some of us have children. We've got other things happening. But the more you can create that work environment, the best is for, for you. Create some type of structure. You can say, I'm going to work for this one hour. This next hour, I'm going to prepare meals for, for everybody at home. Whatever you need to do. But also don't get caught up in, in, in the noise. So if your home phone is ringing, don't answer it. You're at work. Would you answer the phone if you were at work? Don't. Unless you know it's work-related. Don't start goofing around on social media. Put that away. If you can't be extreme, delete your apps during the day so that you're not looking at them. And then at night when your work is over, put them back on your phone because that creates the self-discipline. You'll see you and I've done this before and you'll notice how many times throughout the day you'll go to grab your phone and you'll be like, oh, I just deleted my Instagram app. I can't look at it because that instinctual thing, all those things take time away from your productivity. Yeah. And it, it's kind of those those little distractions and you forget how much they take away each individual task you're doing. You were mentioning a few minutes ago just about how you developed this later on in life. So I would love to rewind a little bit. What did you think you were going to be when you were younger? I love the arts. I studied acting and art, actually. I studied political science and art in school. So I was a very artistic person. I love the arts. And then my parents crushed my dreams like most parents do. <laughs> and they're like, you can't make a living off of this. That's not a job. And I don't want to say sadly I listened to them because I was very young. But I did listen to them. And I think, you know, I didn't think I'd go into law enforcement, but I also grew up in an environment. My parents were immigrants. We lived in an, in an environment that was low income. I don't want to say we were in poverty because we were not. And we weren't very poor, but we weren't great. I lived in low income housing, which is where people live who can't afford their own housing and roaches and, and mice and crime. And it was very difficult growing up in that. But, you know, at the same time, I didn't know any different. That was home. That's what I knew to be home. But when you grow up in this very fear-based environment, lots of crime, lots of drugs, I never played outside. I think it developed this part of me where I started to get sick of being afraid, sick of not being able to do things, not to be able to go out. And even financially, my parents did so many things I would, like, would want to do that other kids do. Hey, can I take a a martial arts class or karate it was popular when I was a kid, you know, the karate kid. My parents were like, no, we, we have no money. And I remember thinking, I'm like, I don't want, how can I change my life so that it's not like this? And then at the same time, how can I change my life so I'm not living in fear? Because I lived in fear and everybody around me lived in fear. And you get a moment where you get tired of it, at least me. And I was like, I want to learn how to be strong and protect myself. And that eventually led me to go into the NYPD. And then from that, even though I wasn't really in the NYPD very long, from that into the U.S. Secret Service. There was something powerful and attractive to me in being able to protect myself, but then in also being help, help able to protect other people. Because there was always this part of me that was like, I want to be 80 years old one day and sit in my rocking chair and look back and be like, you know what? I gave of myself. In some way, I gave of myself to the world. And I think that's so important that we're not takers because we are takers 
but that we have a moment to say, how am I giving back? Speaking of moments, did you have a particular moment when you first realized that you wanted to join the U.S. Secret Service? Nope. I didn't even know what it was. (laughs) I didn't even know what it was. And I want to be truthful because I feel like when people listen to this, they think like, well, you had it all together. You knew everything. I don't. And I'm like, I'm not, I was not that person. I didn't take a single criminal justice class, not a single one. But eventually I studied public service and I studied political science and that kind of, and I interned for a congresswoman. I interned for her for two years for free. And it gave me so much exposure. And I remember people laughing at me, my, my fellow classmates, like, why are you doing that? You're wasting your time for free. What are you getting out of it? But then, you know, her staff, her chief of staff, Mary Ellen Mendelssohn, I will never forget. When I was trying to figure out my life, I'm like, Mary Ellen, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm about to graduate. Like her whole team, that whole office sat down to help me figure out my path because I invested in them and they invested in me. And they're the one who put the seed of the secret service in my head. They're like, why don't you look into this? And I applied. I was like, you know what? Why not? And just that simple of why not and listening to somebody else's idea helped put me on a different path in life. And then one day I'm walking through the White House halls and I'm thinking, how on earth am I in the White House? I'm, how on earth am I in this, in this unique environment? Or even doing interviews for, for criminals, you know, trying to to get confessions from people, get information from people, helping victims and suspects, because Secret Service works investigative cases. And I began to do such meaningful work because I followed one step after the other step after the other step. So what I'm saying is you don't have to have it all perfectly worked out because I sure did not. And I still don't. Even transitioning from that into TV and working in media and in journalism. After I left the service, I, went, I already have a master's degree in forensic psychology. I went back to school. I went to Columbia University, a school that's Ivy League that I personally never thought I'd ever get into. Never. Because it was beyond my reach, beyond my scope. I didn't come from an Ivy League background. I couldn't even afford a school like that growing up. And then I went into journalism. I'm like, why? Well, I, I got to learn. And so that's what I think. It's like, don't worry about the big plan. When people ask me, what's your five-year plan? I'm, I'm like, you tell me yours. And you tell me how well that works out for you because it never turns out the way we think it is. Yeah, we've had plenty of guests on that have been laser focused from a young age, but surprisingly, a large number uh, similar to your path that they weren't exactly sure, even had no exposure to, to what they end up doing. Uh, it's, it's funny how that works up that, out that way. You bring up one of my favorite questions where you said a minute ago, why not? And I'll hear it a lot. Why not me? And I think just that, that mindset and, and that belief system in yourself uh, is really profound and has some unbelievable life takeaways there. Any other takeaways for you when you were interning with the Congresswoman? Uh, I know you mentioned just about them opening you up to the Secret Service. What about just being in that type of environment? So I want to touch on something real quick because you brought it up, the why not thing. There's actually a term for it. It's called self-editing or self-selection. When we self-select ourselves out of something because we think we can't do it. So just so you know, aside from our parents, we kill our dreams before we even launch them because we think no one's going to take me. Why am I going to even apply? We, we kill it before we even have a chance for anybody else to tell us now. It's called self-selection. So very important for we, when we're doing things in life to make sure that you're not doing that to yourself. Do, and now your second question was? <laughs> no, I, I actually even love for you just to go a little bit deeper. You, you Apparently, you, you without a doubt are an expert on this. Anything for someone who is doing that 
a, a better way that they can reframe it just to make sure they don't end up. Pay in attention. That pay attention that you're not doing that. When you you look at a job opening somewhere, right? And you're thinking, man, I, I want to put in for that job, but look at all the stuff they're asking me for. I'm not going to bother. They're not going to take me. You just did it. You just self-selected. How about you put in for it? Usually, anyways, when you see somebody, when they put the stuff out there, nobody has those qualifications. They, they don't. Just put in for it. Let them tell you no. So what I want you to remember is when you're in a situation, if the first no you hear is coming out of your mouth, you're self-selecting, you've got a problem, stop. The first no should never come from you. That's it. It's that simple. Am I saying no or did somebody else just tell me no? Oh, wait a minute. I'm saying no. They didn't even get a chance to reject me. And so what they reject you. So what? They tell you no. Before I went into the Secret Service, I started putting in for jobs in public service. And I put in, I'm going to try to remember, I think I put in for the U.S. Department of Probation. Can I tell you, they gave me a written exam. I was so nervous. I bombed that test. <laughs> bombed it. I don't even, they didn't even call me back. That's how poorly I performed. And if I would have let that crush me, and it did crush me, I'm not going to lie. I felt sad. I was mad at myself. And I'm like, well, next, let me keep going. I didn't use that to deter me from applying to other agencies. And U.S. Department of Probation, U.S. Secret Service, no offense to my friends in the Department of Probation, very different caliber types of work. And so don't do that to yourself. Let them tell you no. And when they tell you no, you know what you should hear in your ear? You should hear, not yet. Not yet. No just means not yet. I'm not there yet. No, I love that. So I'm glad we detoured there for a second. Back to the, the congresswoman. You're two years there. Were there any other takeaways just being in an environment with elite people such as a congresswoman? What do you take away that still stuck with you? There were a couple, two things. One thing was I, I dealt with constituent cases. So after I'd been there for a while and there was trust in my abilities, people write to their congressmen and women, to their congresspeople. And they ask them for help, which everybody, by the way, some people don't know that you can do that. You can do that. I would get letters from people saying, my cable bill is too high. Can you help me with this? And I would call the cable company and be like, why is your bill? Why are you charging this person these rates? And I began to help people in a meaningful way, in a very different way. And something that to you may be like, oh, it's a cable bill. For them, that person, I'm like, they, they don't have money. Or I'd get letters from someone in the military who ended up being put in a position, a difficult position or dealing with some type of harassment issue and they have nowhere else to turn and they're writing to you. And I'm in college reading this letter and thinking, oh my gosh, how do I, we help this person? And I can't speak for any other congressional office, but to that credit of the office, we helped every single person who wrote in. There was not a letter that we didn't try to help. And that's when the idea of public service and helping others really kind of got ingrained to me and how appreciative and impactful that it was. That was super powerful to be in service of others. And the other mindset was being exposed to people that were different than the, the neighborhood that I grew up in. I was surrounded by people who were, I'm Greek, so I was, I was a cocooned in this Greek immigrant culture. That's all I knew. All my friends had the same type of parenting and, and they grew up in the same way. But when I worked in this, this congresswoman's office, I was exposed to something else that I would have never been exposed to. And that is so important to get out of the little bubble that we live in. Because we think, oh, this is... This is the world and this is the rules of engagement for everybody. It is not. That is your little bubble and that is not even a, a, a fraction or a decimal point of what exists in the world and the diversity that exists in the world. 
Speaking of getting out of your bubble and being surrounded by some different people, you protected four presidents, correct? I protected, I, it might be four. I had Ford also, President Ford. Oh, okay. A, a couple of times. Yeah. It's hard to keep, I, that sounds funny, right? I can't yeah, remember all my presidents. <laughs> yeah. No, no. So I, I would just be so intrigued about this. So I, I'm not familiar with, with the Secret Service path, but I have to assume day one upon graduation, they don't have you lined up guarding presidents. So what is that process like? How do you end up at what I'm assuming is, is the pinnacle of that career? You don't get the president. And even if you're on in your life, like you're a lifer in the, the job, there's so many agents that never protect the president ever. To protect the president, it's an internal selection process. So you have to apply. So after, let's say you become an agent, right away, you're put in to do, I don't want to say the grunt work, but you're doing midnight shifts. Um, you're working cases. You're starting off um, doing like any other job. You got to earn your way up. So you're doing low level protection you know, other dignitaries, because don't forget, they protect former presidents, they protect vice president, they protect family members, they protect foreign heads of state. When a foreign head of state comes to the United States, we protect them because we don't want another president, prime minister being assassinated on U.S. soil. We do, there's so much protection involved. And then there's cases that you work, financial institution fraud. The U.S. Secret Service was initially created to fight and combat counterfeit currency. It wasn't for protection. That came many years later. And so we have cases that we would work. So you work in these different units and task forces. A lot of people are unaware of them, hence the name Secret Service. But there's so many things that we do. And then I also did polygraphs and interrogations, interviews for the U.S. Secret Service. But I was trained specifically to do that later on in my career. But the president is an internal selection process. You raise your hand, you say, I would like to go there. And then they say, okay, well, we'll look at your track record to see if we should even let you go there based on your history and performance. And then you go through an internal selection of process or, or an internal training academy, and then you try out. And if you make it, you get in. If you don't, you don't. And that was, for me, at least it was seven years into my career before I could even put in my name. You need to be able to put in the work. Uh, I'm thinking then, are there any methods, types of trainings, or even systems that during your time with the Secret Service if you were able to implement that across all society, you think would just have profound takeaways for anyone in all walks of life? There's two things that I learned. The one thing is to be in service of others. I didn't grow up in an environment that I was taught to be in service of others, to do public service work. I just didn't. I didn't have anybody, again, in politics or in, in, in law enforcement. I, I didn't know anything about that work. My parents, I mean, they grew up in villages, like dirt poor villages when they came to America. So the, the, something like that was like beyond even their scope. But I learned to be in service of others. Public service, I think, is so important. And I do think it would be wonderful here in the United States to have something where people do some form of public service. And it doesn't, I'm not saying just in a military sense, but even uh, Red Cross or, or some type of thing where we, we ask people to, to give of others. Because I think that that will make us a more thoughtful society and more thoughtful of helping each other. I think sometimes we become so I, 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 me, 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 chasing that dream that we lose the sense of that there's other people around us. So I think that's important. And that I learned going into the U.S. Secret Service, that you are there to be in service of others, not yourself. You don't come first. Everybody else comes first. And I think the second thing was in developing resiliency, there's, there's this, especially in training, it's called 
hormesis, the hermetic effect in which through training and the different training academies I went through, they introduced low levels amounts, low level amounts of stress into your life, into your lifestyle, into training. And then you learn to cope with those low level stress uh, elements that they introduce. Then they introduce more stress and then you learn to cope. So I think altering the way we see stress or challenges in our life. In fact, when something happens to you, rather than seeing it like, oh my God, this is a stressful thing. It's like, no, it's a challenge. And you have a moment now to learn. So shifting our mindset from thinking that stress is a negative thing. Certain stresses, yes. Chronic stresses, yes. But you can learn from stressful situations and those stressful situations, rejection and failure, all those things that we are taught to avoid and be ashamed of, I am telling you to embrace those things because those things make you resilient. Yeah, that has me thinking of something you write about, and I know you deal with it a lot, and that's fear. And you talk about the difference between living fearlessly as opposed to being fearless. And I would love for you just to hit on those concepts and the difference there. So the word fearless is a word that I struggle with. And in fact, when the book was being written, um, everybody wanted me to call it fearless. It sounded better. People love that name. It would sell more books. And I really, truly, like, I had this fundamental war going on inside of me. I was like, I can't call it that. And they're like, why? I'm like, because it's not, it doesn't exist. Because nobody's fearless. I'm not fearless. It, it's not true. And we're selling a lie to people. I was like, I can't sell this to people. It's a myth. I'm telling them, here, be fearless. They're going to read this book. And they're going to think they should be fearless. And then when they're not, you know what they're going to do? They're going to think something's wrong with me. I'm off. I'm the exception. Some, you're going to create more depression, more problems within society. Because I'm selling them something that they will never achieve because I am not fearless. And I worked alongside some of the most brave, brave people out there. We're the only agency out there that's told, hey, jump a bullet. Jump in front of a bullet for this person. We were, it doesn't mean we're not afraid. Hell yeah, we're afraid. Even when we would take a door down or do an arrest warrant or you're dealing with people, anytime you pulled your gun out of your holster, I was afraid. I was afraid I don't want to shoot somebody that I shouldn't shoot. I don't want him to shoot me either. Fear is good because it keeps you alive, it keeps you alert, and it keeps you from doing stupid things. That's why I called it live fearlessly. But when you are consumed with fear and you're afraid to apply for a job or quit a job that's bad for you, or to take a chance of relationship, or to quit a relationship, that is not good fear. And that is when you, one day when your life is coming to an end and you look back and you're like, I didn't do the things I wanted to do because I was afraid. And because you live, then you have anger and resentment and regret. And that's why I wrote this book. It's like, I want you to protect yourself, live as fearlessly as possible, but don't let that thing control your life. And so many of us do. And we, we all have it happen from moment to moment. I've had it happen. And that's why I share with people, like, just don't let it. When you see it happen, correct it, shift it, learn from it. Yeah, you mentioned so many people do live to that, and they go through their entire life with that. So that's a pretty profound thing to for you to be able to analyze. I'm wondering, was there a particular moment that, that the difference between those two really set in for you? No, it wasn't a moment. It happened over time. I, I do think... I will tell you one profound moment that was for me when I, I actually had to, I look back at my life and I'm like, what have I accomplished? What have I done? And it was, um, it was on 9-11. It was when the towers fell and I caught, I got caught in the first tower falling. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm going to die. Like I really thought I was like, this is it. I'm going to die. And in that moment, I, I had this profound sense of sadness because I look back at my life and I'm like, what did I do with my life? 
And I just got into the Secret Service. I just bought a brand new car, had this really cool career. And I was thinking, yeah, I made it, right? And then fast forward to like a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later, 9-11 happens and I'm sitting there and I'm having a completely different conversation in my head. I'm thinking, well, what have I done in my life? So what, I, I finally could afford to buy a brand new car and well, I can't take that with me right now. All right, so I got this really cool job and I can't take that with me right now either. And I really looked back upon my life and I was just like, I need to be okay with myself so that when, now I ended up living, I ended up not being killed by the debris or the collapse of the tower. But I promised myself after that moment that when, if that next time comes, and I don't know how it's going to come, none of us know how it's going to come, but when it comes, I'm not going to look back at my life and feel like I did in that moment where I'm like, what did I do? I didn't really live. What did I give? How did I make an impact in the world? I don't ever want to feel like I did in that moment again. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I know there was some incredibly difficult times and losing some people close to you during that. So, so thanks for sharing that. And it was really insightful and helpful, I think, for you to walk through your self-talk during that moment. And hopefully many of us don't experience a moment like that. But I'm wondering day to day when, when we are approaching problems or experiences where there is fear built up, what's the self-talk like for you during those times? I want you to ask yourself one question at the end of the day, when you reflect on your day, what could I have done better? That's it. What we focus on is what this person did to me, what mistake they made, how they did wrong, how this person, this, this person, that, right? It's easier. We're, we're, we're focused on the outside issue. And what I'm going to say to you is, and what has truly helped me and made a huge difference in my life, what could I have done differently? So for example, if a TV project I'm working on doesn't go through or an interview I'm doing or a journalism thing or a business deal, whatever it is, and it, it does not work out the way I want it to. At the end of the day, I ask myself, what could I have done differently and how can I do better? Because it's easy for me to, to point and be like, oh, my agent didn't do this right or this person didn't do this right or that guy was trying to shaft me. That's easy. But what could I have done differently? That's a whole other ballgame. And it is so empowering because now you have the power to change the outcome of the way things go. But when I blame another person or when I put the responsibility on that other person, I have no power. So now I'm at the mercy of them making a change or altering the way they do things for things to work. And sometimes maybe it's saying, you know what? This person I'm doing business with or want to do business with, maybe I'm, not, I'm looking at the wrong place. What could I do differently? Maybe I need to pick a better business partner. It's as simple as that. Do you have a process for a follow-up when things don't work out? I know you, you just mentioned the steps in terms of taking accountability and assessing that. Uh, do you go further then so that you, you're making sure you're not making similar mistakes in the future? I will take a moment to self-assess and look at other relationships I have. And what I'll do is if I see I have conflict or struggles in other relationships, whether personal or business relationships, that will tell me there's something going on with me, that I'm not functioning right or I'm not thinking right or perhaps I'm not behaving right, that something's off with me. But if all my other relationships are strong and it's just, just one relationship, professional, personal, whatever it is that's off, then that tells me, okay, then it's likely this other person that I'm having an issue with, I need to figure that. But if you stop and you pause and you're like, wait a minute, I'm fighting with my parents and with my boss, 
and with my partner and with my kids. All my relationships are, are, are strained at the moment. Now the light bulb goes off. Oh, wait a minute. I'm, there's one constant denominator, me. And so that can happen when we're going through difficult problems in, in our lives. So you can be having a, a fight with your partner, but then when you're talking to your colleague or your boss, you're not speaking right or speaking well or professionally, and you're having arguments with them and you're thinking, what's wrong with them? And then it's like, ah, nope, it's coming from me. I, I think that's really powerful. No, that certainly is. And one of the threads along there seems to be communication. And I'm not even sure if you fully remember this. You did a TED Talk a few years ago. Uh, I saw around communication. I absolutely loved. Do you remember that? I remember that TED Talk, yeah. Do, do you remember the, the basically the five principles you have around communication? Yes, I do. And if they, they evolved because you're constantly becoming and changing. But yes, I do remember most of them. So I, this is what I love. I, I love recircling things and, and kind of discovering that evolution process. Uh, so what? how do you view communication then today? Shut up and listen. <laughs> Seriously. Nobody listens. Everybody's so busy telling you what they think. Let me tell you what I think. Let me give you... No, let me shove my opinion down your throat. And... Most people just want to be understood. They just want to feel understood and heard. So let them feel understood and heard. Let people talk, listen, and you can still disagree with them. That's the thing. You don't have to agree with someone. And there doesn't have to be conflict if you disagree. You can disagree with someone and be like, I hear you. I disagree with you. That would happen to me in the interview room all the time. Because I'm dealing with someone who just raped a four-year-old little girl. And I have to sit there and listen to him. And I will. And I will listen to him and I will, will try to understand his perspective, empathy, call it, and listen to that. But at the same time, I don't agree with what he did. It doesn't mean I have to agree with what he did, but I can articulate myself in a way to connect with him so that I can get what I need, which is information, which is truthfulness, because I'm trying to solve a crime, trying to get justice for the family. But if I sit there and be like, let me get in your face, because I think you're a piece of garbage, good luck with that. I'm going to get nowhere. Because no matter what he did, he's not going to turn on and be like, oh, yeah, you know what? You're right. I am a piece of garbage. He's going to get defensive and he's going to push back. And that's in anything we do. Listen to people. Let them feel heard. And then once people feel heard, then they will listen to you. But it's just just go first. It's always our ego. Our ego gets in the way of so many things. It's your pride. So the minute you're thinking, how dare you? I want you to little, 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 little red flag should be going up in your head. Ah. My ego's getting in the way. My ego's talking. I'm not thinking long-term big game. What am I out to get? Am I out to lock in the business deal, a negotiation, get this person to tell me something? Or is my ego getting in the middle of that because I'm offended? Because God, God forbid somebody speaks to me a certain way. That's fragility on your part. That's a superficial ego. When, you, when that happens, remember that and be like, uh-uh, I'm better than that. You talk about your time in the interrogation room. Uh, it just has me thinking. I mean, you are a true expert in understanding body language, and then you're also a human lie detector. Uh, so I know this will not be easy over audio, but are there any uh, telltale signs that we could look for in someone who's lying? Oh, my gosh. That's, so, that's such a hard thing. And I dedicated, like, a huge section because the book's in three parts, right? Part one's protection. Part two's reading people. And... I, 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 a big part of the book is reading people. So this is what I'm going to say to you. It's really the things that you do beforehand that help you assess someone. So what I will say is in simple things, when it comes to like setting up an environment to talk to someone, 
if you're interviewing someone or you're trying to get the truth out of somebody, don't put something between you and that other person. Just This is just more of a psychological thing. No desks, no barriers, no nothing. So even if you're a boss and you want to talk to an employee, get out from behind the desk, sit in a chair and look at each other. Or even your loved one or your kid. Make sure you guys, are, you can see each other's body language. It indicates openness. And people are more likely to be truthful to you. But I think a key thing, something that involves verbal language. Often we will ask a question of someone and they won't answer the question. You'll think they answered it and then you'll move on or they'll deflect you. And that's where I want people to be really careful. Ask your questions. And if you're not getting an answer, come back and ask it in a different way. Or maybe pause, put a pin in it and be like, I need to come back. So for example, like something that would happen to me like all the time, it's a very simple example. I'd ask people in the interview room, you know, what time did you come home last night? And they'd say, oh, you know, I usually get home around six. Did they answer my question? Nope. No, they didn't. But do you know how many people will move on? You know why? Because you're not listening. That's it. Something as simple as that. Now, when I hear that, a little red flag goes up. That's it. So whether you're asking your, your boyfriend or a criminal, whoever you're asking, what time did you get home last night? You have to catch that answer so that you can, that you can respond. So in that moment, I know they didn't answer my question. So I'm like, why didn't they? Why are they dodging it? And how can I get back to get, getting an answer from them? Or, and I would see politicians do this all the time and they're great at it, they would deflect questions and they would lead you somewhere else. So you want to be careful that when you ask something, you're having a conversation, the other person doesn't get in and say, be like, move over, I'm driving this bus. And they push you out of the driver's seat and now they're driving the conversation. So those are the things that people can tactfully do that you're completely blind to. And you're thinking, oh, I got my, all my information and I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, you got nothing. They didn't answer anything you just asked. No, that's awesome. And I, I know you cover a bunch more in the book, but I would love to know what, what's the training like for that? And, and with regards to the training, how long does it take to truly be competent with that skill? So look, my training was three months. This is just interviewing, reading people. It was a three-month academy. It was very intense. Obviously, you know, we were dealing with much higher stakes. You have to be really careful too, because you don't want to presume somebody's guilty. Like a big thing is being objective and unbiased. And that can get you in a lot of trouble. If you're not an ethical person, you're not aware of your own biases, and you bring those into, into an interview room or any type of conversation, you're really going to do damage. So that's like the important thing. But after that, I, I wasn't allowed to do interviews one-on-one -on -one with people. They actually had me work with like a, a senior person, a mentor who would watch me interview people and make sure that I was doing everything and not leading people. Like you can, you can still lead somebody to give you information and, and get even a false confession or false information from people and not even realize it, not even mean to do it. But I remember one of the most senior interrogators, he was a really good interviewer, really good. And I use interrogation and interview interchangeably because in the world I came from, it's the same thing. You don't get people's in people's faces. That gets you nowhere. But he said to me, it's going to take you two solid years to feel like anybody can walk into your interview room and you've got it. So really it's practice. The more you talk to people and pay attention and, and use these strategies, not just talk to people, but really be mindful, the better you're going to be. And what I do with the book is I, I lay them out almost for you to create new habits in simple ways. It's like do this one thing first, master it, then move on to the next thing, then master that, then move on to the next thing. So for example, create a new habit. Creating a new habit takes about 28 days. 
So just master this one thing, this one habit, don't do anything else. Then once you master that, then move on to the next, master that, move on to the next. Yeah, you, you really lay this out even just with the title of the book. If you think about uh, constructing a bulletproof vest, it's layer on layer on layer on top of each other, uh, similar to the, the everything you lay out here in the book. But but a minute ago, you mentioned the the assigned mentor. And I'm wondering if you've had other mentors, non-family member related uh, throughout your life or career that have just had a good p- impact on you. I never had a mentor. And I, I actually write about it in, it's chapter 22 in the book. I spent a lot of time because I grew up from, you know, because I always wanted to learn. And I'm like, why are the people successful and some people aren't? And as I'm trying to figure out my journey, one of the things I would always hear is like, find a mentor, find a mentor. And I'm like, where am I going to find this mentor? Who is he? Where is she? And I was like, who, who is that person? And I didn't have that. And I realized like, I felt that that was like another myth we tell people. And then you tell that to someone and they think, well, I don't have anybody in my circle because some people don't. Now, what does that mean? I'm done. And I feel like when you tell people that, People are thinking I can only be successful if I find this other person. So rather than spending my time and energy and focusing on, focusing on the collective life goals I want, now I'm diverted and I'm focusing on finding a mentor. Hey, and I've had people ask me this all the time. Would you be my mentor? And I look at people and I think to myself, what does that mean? What does that mean? How am I going to mentor you? You could come to me from time to time to ask me something. But even then, you're becoming reliant on me to solve your problems instead of learning to cope. So what I talk about the book is that everybody is your mentor. You can learn anything from anyone. And you can even look at someone who is a jerk and learn how not to be. I have learned from so many people that I thought negatively of or had negative qualities that I was like, I will never be that. I will make sure not to be that. And that person was my mentor. So I really believe that mentors are all around you. Stop, stop wasting your time focusing on finding that one perfect person. And if you have got access to someone like a, a Stephen Jobs out there or Bill Gates, if you got access to that kind of person, good for you. The rest of us, we need to figure it out on our own. Don't feel hopeless. In fact, you will do better than those people. I'm so glad you hit on this because you just bring up two such great points there uh, about when, when you don't have direct access, go out and finding them, and then you can find these mentors anywhere. I mean, I even know for myself, just some biographies I've read, you can kind of transport yourself in, into the mind of that person and, and think how you can navigate. And I also love what you bring up about even people that you don't want to be like. You, you think about them and how you make sure to not imitate those actions. So I'm so glad you brought that up. You mentioned being surrounded by some of those people like a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates, and you actually have been in these scenarios around some really impressive people, and I'm not just referring to the presidents here. What have you seen with working alongside some of the best? And I know this is a really loaded question, but what makes someone, an elite person, to be the top, to be the best? Resiliency. I'm telling you, it's resiliency. It's the ability to have people treat you like garbage and talk about you like garbage. Cause you tell me who is not gossiped more, insulted more, treated poorly or treated like a thing more than the president of the United States, any president of the United States or any public official. And yet they get up there and they go out and they do their job. Well, the rest of us are like, Oh my God, I'm being bullied and this and that. And it's true, but they get up there and they're like, I'm going to take it and I'm going to still do my job. I've learned resiliency and I've really learned not to fight back in the most obvious of ways. 
I think when we feel insulted or by someone, we immediately, what do we want to do? We want to fight back, right? We want to insult them back or we want to defend ourselves. And again, we waste so much time sometimes engaging with fools. And I really learned to avoid, how to avoid that and how to avoid listening to negative voices that I shouldn't listen to. Don't get me wrong. Constructive criticism and, and criticism to some degree is important because it helps you become better and it helps point out mistakes that we make. Super important. But not everything is that. Some stuff is just noise. Some stuff is negativity. So I don't want you to be in that mindset. And I tell people like, hey, look at all the haters I have. Isn't that great? If you got a lot of haters, take a step back <laughs> and look like, why do I have a lot of haters? And how is this helping me in life? It's not something to be proud of. But sometimes you will naturally get haters when you are doing meaningful things, or when you are putting yourself out there, when you're sharing your opinion. And that is okay too. But it's assessing that. But you, you said something right at the beginning. You said, you talked about reading books and biographies. I have learned so much from reading. And I'm a big audiobook person. I love audiobooks. And that's why when I did my book, it was really important for me to read my own book because I was like, I really want to connect with people. And I want them to know I'm with them on this journey, that I'm their mentor in this moment. Right. And I still listen to so many books. And I can't tell you how much that's educated my mind and my, my, my spirit, like how much I learn about other people who walk completely different walks of life for me, how much I learn. Reading is such a huge thing, such a huge thing. It's so impactful. It's probably one of the most, most impactful things, more so than even being around presidents and first ladies. And it's something that everybody has access to. Wow, that's an incredibly profound statement. And I, I really am appreciative that you read your audiobook because I think it's so much easier to connect because I almost feel like I've spent six, eight hours with you uh, after listening to the book. Any other books, though, that you recommend? You mentioned just listening to a ton. Any that come to mind that you'd love to just pass on to someone? You know, I love Tim Ferriss' books, Tools of Titans. I like books like that to learn from other people. I want to learn from other people. But I also love... Um, you know, if, if, if for people who want to understand like what's going on right now. So look, I come from a law enforcement background. I was the person who would investigate people and put them in jail. And I was part of the criminal justice system, but I also was not delusional enough to know that the system isn't flawed. And so there's a book called The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton, who have I met, who's a friend, and Laura Love, who's also a friend. And it's a book about a man who was put on death row and was in prison for 30 years for a crime he never committed. And it exposes social injustice, which I think is so powerful. I love books in all different walks. And so when there's something happening in the world that I'm not, that I think like, I don't, I may not know everything about this. I, I want to know. And I love to listen to other people's story, stories. And I also think fiction is super powerful too. It doesn't have to be real word, world. So like fiction, there's a book by Madeline Miller called Circe. It's a Greek mythology character, but she wrote this, this, this novel about this character going through different difficulties in her life and through this fictional character. It's one of my favorite books. Again, super powerful. Yeah, I've read the Cersei book. I'm pretty sure she also wrote another book. She might have done Achilles, I think. Yes. Uh, if anyone's yes, The Song that. of Achilles. Yes, yes. yes. Yep. Yeah, the other one, though, I hadn't heard, so I always love getting new book recommendations. Uh, you mentioned you love hearing other people's story, and that's a, a big driver for me with this podcast. But if roles were reversed here, and, and you were the one conducting the interview, and you could sit down with anyone dead or alive, not a family member, though, who would that be for you? 
I would stay with all the presidents I protected. <laughs> <laughs> I would, because I was always in work mode, always in work mode. I would sit with them. I would want to interview every single president and first lady, because I, I spent a lot of time with the first ladies that I protected and be like, all right, I know you from behind the scenes. Let's talk about you from behind the scenes. Because I would always see interviewers and reporters go into this, I'm interviewing the president or first lady moment. And I'm like, you know what? That's a human being there. You're missing so much by not asking them like deep, meaningful questions just about who they are as like a person. So that's the kind of podcast I'd want to do. Oh, I would absolutely love sitting in and hearing some of those conversations. So, Evie, this is this has been a blast for me. The book is becoming bulletproof, and, and anyone who does listen to that, uh, they're going to learn how to protect themselves, strengthen their mental resilience and confidence, read people, influence situations, live fearlessly. Much of what we hit on today, and you go so much deeper into the book. For anyone else who really wants to pick this up, any other takeaways uh, or things you want to leave with them? I think. When you read my book, or if you read my book, or any other book out there, I want you to look at everything like a buffet. You don't have to take everything away, but there's pieces. There's things in there that you can take that to implement in your life. Don't try to be somebody else. Don't try to make everything work for you. Like force that, that's, you know, that square peg into that circle. Take from something like as if you go to buffet. You don't eat everything, but you take what you like and what works for you. And so when you, you listen or read my book or anybody else's book or anything out there, take it and make it work for you. Absolutely incredible advice. Great place to end there. So the book is now out, Becoming Bulletproof. You guys can pick that up in the show notes. But Evie, thank you so much for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.